Hi there, this is Ken Roundy, a USH med student. I have four students with me, three students with me this week. I'm just thinking maybe uh, some of you count as a student a third, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so two medical students and a master's of social work student. And let's go ahead and do some introductions. Do you want to start, Lauren? Yeah, so my name is Lauren Cornea. I'm a master of social work student at Brigham Young University. Thank you for joining us. So this is a first for us. We've had a few people that are not medical students, but it's been fairly rare. Really, really great to have you in the group today. And Manu? Yeah, so my name is Manuela Mariner Manu, and I'm a third year medical student at Rocky Vista University down in St. George. Good to have you here. Mm -hmm. And Ryan? Yeah, so my name is Ryan Brahman. I'm a medical student with Rocky Vista as well. I'm a third year, but this is my elective rotation, so kind of a fourth year. Sort of like know. a fourth year, right? <laughs> a so, hybrid. So, Ryan, I usually ask a few mm -hmm. extra questions of the person that developed the podcast. This is a podcast that you developed the idea for and have done a lot of the research to um, build. You are going into psychiatry. Yeah, that's the plan. That's mm -hmm. weird. Only only strange people go into psychiatry. Uh, you'd be the one to know that. <laughs> <laughs> so well played. Perfectly done. Thank you. On a more serious note, mm -hmm. how did you decide to go into psychiatry? Um, a lot of different factors. I think it's really interesting, First, firstly. I think that's the quick one that I think of. Um, but I also grew up with a lot of people, um, a lot of different... Uh, psychiatric diagnoses and people that I knew and illnesses and things that kind of push me towards this too. Okay. You mentioned something very interesting to me and that is mm -hmm. that you like uh, molecular biology. Okay. <laughs> I am interested in biochemistry. I really enjoyed it in college. Um, preface that with I don't know if I'm very good at it. <laughs> But I think it's interesting and fun. I do think that psychiatry is more and more mm -hmm. including people that have that fascination with biochemistry, molecular biology, mm -hmm. and the role that those sciences play in understanding how we treat our patients that have mental illness, right? Mm -hmm. So very, very cool. Now, the podcast itself. Mm -hmm. Tell me how the idea for the podcast came about, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so... Um, my first behavioral health rotation, I was at an outpatient psychiatry clinic up in Ogden, and we just saw a lot of patients who had been taking benzodiazepines for some as much as like 15 years, usually a couple years. Um, and so our role was in a lot of their care was deprescribing and kind of trying to phase them back off of the benzodiazepines and putting them on or starting them with different medications or different treatments. And I just kind of saw how difficult that was with a lot of our patients and how kind of, I don't know, just how scary that felt to me to see patients coming in with so many problems because of the benzodiazepines. So I thought that'd be a cool thing to go into. And also you had mentioned in one podcast that it would be a good topic. And when I was thinking of topics, I had a bunch of ideas floating around in my mind and that was kind of my sign that, yeah, okay, we can do something with this then. Very cool. Yeah. Let's start off by talking about the history of benzodiazepines. Now, mm -hmm. Manu, and I always want to put the emphasis on the A, not the U, right? But you have it more on the U, Manu. Yeah, um, when you say either of those, really. I, I really struggle <laughs> with that, Manuela. Uh, you found the history of benzodiazepines to be interesting to you. Tell us about the history of benzodiazepines. The story of benzos, and I'm just going to call them benzos, or I'm going to trip over the word the entire time, it starts in Krakow, Poland in about the 1950s with a chemist named uh, Leo Sternbach, so Ryan's kind of people, chemistry. 
Um, at the time, tranquilizers were shown to have considerable clinical value, and there was great interest in kind of developing that field. So Sternbach was charged with investigating them further. Um, and then in this old paper that I found, written by the man himself, he mentions that when chemists attack the problem of synthesizing a new drug, uh, they're either working through a biochemical working hypothesis or a purely empirical approach. Um, that empirical approach he deems is the low road. Basically, you're either modifying existing compounds or synthesizing new compounds. Um, and then that new class would have to involve a lot of things. It'd have to be relatively unexplored so that you looked super cool, be readily accessible, <laughs> uh, give the possibility of uh, a lot of variations and transformations for future uh, chemists, and then offer some challenges because what would this be without a challenge? Um, and then look as if it could lead to biologically active products. So this kind of led uh, Sternbach and his team to, and I'm going to slaughter this here, but benzheptoxidiazines. He had previously worked with them in one of his uh, postdoctoral assistantships back in the 1930s at the University of Krakow. Um, and he had initially abandoned that project, as well as this benzo project. He worked on it for a couple years, and then when one of his assistants was doing a spring cleaning of the lab in 1957, he found some leftover compound. They ended up testing that, and that actually led them to the creation of the first benzo, which is chlorodiaz epoxide, or Librium. Um, and that was marketed in 1960. Diazepam, or Valium, which we know, uh, followed in 1963. Um, so, yeah, ultimately coined the benzodiazepines, and it was basically the sedative hypnotic of choice by the 1970s. Um, and then, unfortunately, by the 1980s, it became pretty apparent that it possessed this really increased risk of dependence, which I think is kind of what leads us to Ryan's question or investigation today. Yeah. It, it's very fascinating, drug discovery. We've had a few podcasts in the past on drug discovery and drug use. I, I still think that one of the more fascinating was uh, the Atypical Depression podcast, which talked about INH analogs and how they were uh, found to have some benefit in treatment of, of depression. So I want to I follow up on this. Sedative were not originally, or sedative hypnotics or tranquilizers, right? Tranquilizers were not originally thought of as sleeping medications. It was more about settling anxiety or settling agitation. That's changed a little bit, and uh, the armamentarium of benzodiazepines has grown. One of the articles that we looked at showed 13 benzodiazepines that are available in the United States. Two non-benzos, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know that I have this right, I think three non-benzodiazepine alpha-1 subunit active molecules that are uh, FDA approved, three barbiturates that work at the GABA receptor, and three other medications, uh, chlorhydrate, meprobate, and carisoprodol, which is Soma, uh, also have benzodiazepine, re well, not benzodiazepine receptor activity, but GABA receptor activity, and we'll talk maybe about the GABA receptor more in a follow-up uh, podcast. Now, I want to kind of zero in on this because apparently in Germany there are 90 benzodiazepine molecules that are approved for use in that country uh, with the express caveat that I think they're only allowed for two to four weeks through the national mm -hmm. payer systems, right? If you have your own insurance, perhaps you can get additional scripts, but I think through the national system it's only two to four weeks. I think this is where the problem comes in. Uh, 
Ryan, everything that we read said that generally speaking, benzodiazepines are a two to four week molecule, and yet. Mm -hmm. You see people on them for a lot longer than two to four weeks. Years, in fact, <laughs> yes. right? Mm -hmm. So what what are the effects when when somebody slowly comes off of benzodiazepines? So we're, mm -hmm. we're distinguishing this right now from acute withdrawal, mm -hmm. right? Which can cause a delirium, can be very problematic, seizures, safety. Slow deprescribing mm -hmm. is fraught with difficulty, anticipatory anxiety, anxiety itself, restlessness, mm -hmm. uh, difficulty falling asleep, a number of other things. Right. So Talk to me about the things that you saw in the clinic where you were deprescribing mm -hmm. benzodiazepines. Right, so we saw a lot of people, like you were saying with the anticipatory anxiety, it's a lot of people just having rebound anxiety after they were starting to pare down on their dosage. Um, insomnia and irritability were also two big things that people reported. The irritability we kind of saw a little more in clinic and the insomnia <laughs> probably <laughs> contributed to that too. A lot of people talking about how they couldn't fall asleep anymore because mm -hmm. uh, it seemed like a lot of our patients were using them for sleep. I thought we ran across a paper that said that on balance people get to sleep four minutes faster with benzodiazepines. Did you see something along those lines? I remember that, yeah. So I don't know if it's the feeling that maybe they got to sleep faster, but they didn't actually get more sleep. Yeah, I'm a little yeah. baffled by that, and it's mm -hmm. one of the things that I didn't explore enough in preparation for the podcast. Mm -hmm. Benzodiazepines have some big problems, not just the risk of withdrawal and a seizure, but a few other things. I think there's a push for deprescription for these big issues. Can you talk about the big issues? Right, so um, especially in elderly patients, and luckily we didn't see very many in my clinic, um, but I've seen a couple in different nursing homes. Um, so elderly patients on benzodiazepines can, uh, can increase their fall risk, which is a big deal in people who are already kind of have brittle or bones or have some um, bleeding issues. So fall risk was a big thing I came across. Um, impairment when driving or operating motor vehicles is something to be concerned about when using benzodiazepines. Um, they can reduce respiratory function in people, um, not to the same extent that barbiturates or um, opioids can, but in conjunction with any of those drugs that can kind of cause a steep decline in respiratory function, so that's something to be worried about. Um, and there's dizziness and all the other things that can contribute to the fall risk in elderly patients. Um, I have read some information about dementia, but in most yes. of the things we were reading, there weren't a lot of references to that. Mm -hmm. Did you come across anything that spoke about risk of dementia, like specifically right. some sort of study or data rather than simply, well, we think it causes it? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember. I don't recall one specific on dementia, but I remember, like you said, hearing a lot about it. I saw a lot about um, long-term interrograde memory loss. Um, as soon as people start taking the benzodiazepines, I can't remember what article that was, but it was saying as soon as they started taking it, they had some trouble processing memories. These benzodiazepines yeah. don't seem to be great medications for mm -hmm. the long run, and, and yet yeah. we, we seem to have a tough time pulling people off of those. Mm -hmm. uh, over the last number of years, I think some of the data we looked at came from uh, about 2010, at which point there were 100 million scripts written every year in the United States for benzodiazepines, mm -hmm. uh, that there had been a pretty substantial increase over that previous decade. But I think you are tracking that that increase has happened even earlier 
right? This has been mm-hmm. something that has just slowly increased. I think yeah. you have numbers from the 70s. Yeah, well, one thing I found was that they were the most prescribed drug in the 70s, at least in the United States, which I thought was kind of crazy to think about. People were taking so many of these. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think now, I don't know if they're, they're up there with opioids, at least Certainly. in the past 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a lot of articles that we looked at that almost made the comparison between the two molecules yes. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I was also intrigued, in, in a previous podcast we've talked about the um, letters to the editor that were recited thousands of times, mm-hmm. which created the justification for opioids to not be a problem, right? And what's fascinating to me is that one of the textbooks that the APA publishes the approach of the article is, e- even though these are for two to four weeks, these are relatively safe molecules. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I, I don't know that I'm left with that impression reading the research literature the same way that I was left with that impression from this textbook. And I'm, I'm wondering if at some point we're going to see a similar kind of curve or, or invection point with benzodiazepines where we start to say, hey, wait a minute, these are really dangerous molecules and they've been pushed by pharmaceutical companies so that they're still out in the community. They're causing a lot of mortality and morbidity and, and um, you know, this needs to change. And I, I wonder if we'll see that. I don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that would help in some ways. I don't think the death rate sure. is quite as high as it is with opioids. Mm-hmm. I think even near 2010, it was three per 100,000 people in the United States. Um, but there's also this association now with increased suicide rate, also mm-hmm. with uh, nearly half a million uh, emergency room visits per year associated with benzodiazepines. And I don't know if that's uh, overdose with respiratory issues. Alcohol mm-hmm. clearly plays a role in those as well. So how do we stop people from taking benzodiazepines, or better said, how do we deprescribe benzodiazepines? I think the first step would be to not prescribe them in the first place. <laughs> so you're if talking you about early mm-hmm. intervention, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So one of the uh, one of the uh, reference sources I looked at suggested there are essentially five stages for intervention with benzodiazepines. The first is early intervention, which mm-hmm. is don't prescribe, or if you do, there is a clear end to the prescription at two weeks. Right. We are done. I think in other podcasts we've spoken very specifically about how benzodiazepines may be harmful in the setting of acute stress. And so mm-hmm. uh, at most, maybe for uh, insomnia, mm-hmm. right? For temporary insomnia or something along those lines. I was still kind of struggling to figure out where I would use this medication. Right, I mean, I don't know if maybe a bridge while you're waiting for an SSRI to start to kick in, if somebody's anxiety is just to the point where they can't function or they have a hard time functioning. I, I don't know where else. Yeah, maybe with insomnia as well. I think I have looked. I think the FDA approvals are Mm -hmm. about anxiety, generally speaking. And I have heard people talk about using benzodiazepines as a bridge to an SSRI. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure there's a lot of data to support that. Maybe that's an interesting future podcast as well. Because I think that is something that a lot of psychiatrists talk about, right? Mm -hmm. You know what I do is I have a few short-term, very fast-acting, short half-life benzodiazepines for an emergency for a week, and then I have some GABA or some clonazepam, which is a longer-acting half-life benzodiazepine, and that creates a bridge maybe. And again, I just don't know that I've found a lot of good data for that while you start an SSRI. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just to kind of finish out that list of interventions, you're talking about limit the amount of prescriptions or don't prescribe. Uh, That would be early intervention. The next level of intervention after somebody is prescribed is outpatient Mm deprescribing. 
followed by potentially intensive outpatient deprescribing, uh, residential out, uh, deprescribing, and then probably a hospitalization when there's an acute withdrawal or, or a high risk of, of withdrawal delirium associated with uh, deprescribing. Right. Um, interestingly enough, a couple of the articles I looked at said that um, withdrawing benzodiazepines isn't that much different than coming off of SSRIs. That seemed unusual to me, mm -hmm. and I think there was a, an article behind that that I wanted to follow up with and haven't been able to yet. We'll kind of see where that goes. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, the ASAM, uh, there's a test that can be used that uh, can be administered by a lot of different people, and that ASAM kind of helps guide where you might place somebody in treatment, right. depending on what level of deprescribing or withdrawal you're looking at. Mm -hmm. so, so very much like your answer, let's suppose that somebody now has come into you and they have been on a couple of milligrams of alprazolam, which is Xanax, a very uh, short half-life fast-acting benzodiazepine, or three, benzo or three milligrams, two to three milligrams, and they're starting to have problems with their memory, they're uh, misusing a couple of the pills, mm -hmm. uh, they take an extra one every once in a while, they have to have their script refilled, and their spouse is saying, these are a problem. Um, my spouse is not the same on these. That's usually why people came in. <laughs> <laughs> Quite often, right? Mm -hmm. So now what do we do? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I read one article that was interesting where they actually um, switched them from alprazolam or Xanax to Valium, mm -hmm. um, diazepam, uh, because it's longer acting and there was less of a risk of an acute withdrawal. And then from there, they tapered that diazepam dose down. Um, to the point where they were not on the benzo anymore, but that took a little while. Um, so, I mean, there's that option. I don't think they saw very much improvement or a difference between doing that versus just tapering down on the alprazolam. I, I think I mm -hmm. saw a number of, um, like, the Canadian Psychiatric That's Association, mm -hmm. the American Psychiatric Association, all sorts of groups have guidelines for how to do this. Right. I'm not sure I saw good data on how to do it, like where right. it had actually been tested mm -hmm. in an outpatient setting on mm -hmm. how to do these kinds of things. Um, it seems like a lot of it's speculation or what that specific psychiatrist has seen worked in the past. Case reports mm -hmm. were common yeah. in this, or when there were studies, 30 patients or so, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very limited numbers uh, to guide us here. Uh, so I did see this switch to an equivalent dose of another benzodiazepine, or even mm -hmm. switch to a lower dose of another benzodiazepine, those are two options, mm -hmm. or find an alternate GABA agent, so there are a couple of molecules that work in the GABA receptor, mm -hmm. and then one option that uh, I don't have listed here would be to try and find some other class of agent as an, uh, let's see, how would you call this, maybe not an augmentation strategy, mm -hmm. but um, as part of the taper of. Right, like a, like there should be a word for that. There is a word for it. <laughs> I know. And uh, it'll come back to that. me about uh, five minutes after we stop recording this podcast, right? <laughs> Usually how um, it works. So, so mm -hmm. as far as switching to another benzodiazepine, you still have the problem of the benzodiazepine, right? Right. Which is the risk of falls, the cognitive impairment, the risk of car accidents, and I think the limited um, evidence that it does mm -hmm. truly change benzodiazepine or, or truly change anxiety over time. Right. right? And, and so I think then it comes down to the difference between a few kinds of things like 
rapid taper adjunctive mm-hmm. adjunctive treatments during That's taper. The word. Yeah, so then I think it comes down to the idea of do you have a fast taper or a slow taper? And I think across the board the evidence we saw was slow taper yeah, seems to be more slow. tolerable but not too mm-hmm. slow. And how long does that taper take maybe? I mean, there were some people that were saying it could take up to a year, mm-hmm. a couple years. It seems more like between like six to eight months. I also saw mm-hmm. some data that I thought was reasonable about three months, depending on what kind of support was available. Mm-hmm. So I think the answer is probably somewhere between three to 12 months. Yeah. <laughs> With really, you know, my desire to have yeah. more evidence about that. Mm-hmm. Now, I read about, I don't know, maybe 20 different kinds of strategies for uh adjunctive treatment in deprescribing. And by deprescribing, we're talking about generally tapering to discontinuation, right? Right. Um, But what I think was maybe more interesting than all of those articles that were very brief summaries or case reports or very small case series or even in a couple of cases, some randomized controlled trials, what I thought was most interesting was there seems to be some good data about what makes uh, taper the taper go better or worse, and the outcomes. So a lower baseline dose mm-hmm. is associated with a better outcome. Few problems with withdrawal. So less anxiety mm-hmm. symptoms, less irritability, somnolence, or rather insomnia, mm-hmm. less of those things. Um, less severe physiological dependence so not only the discontinuation syndromes, but the, the withdrawal dependency-related syndromes. Um, no alcohol use, so comorbid alcohol use, problematic. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, if you had a meaningful decrease in the dose, any decrease was associated with an improvement in quality of life, which I thought was fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. Because these are patients who, generally speaking, really like how they feel on benzodiazepines, and yet their life is, has greater quality when they're off. Mm-hmm. And we I noticed think. that a couple times, um, seeing patients like maybe halfway through a taper, mm-hmm. or not the day that we tell them they have to taper, <laughs> but a couple <laughs> weeks later. Yeah, they're saying that they're reporting either the same amount of anxiety as they were like multiple doses ago, or they're feeling better. That was kind of cool to hear. They still didn't want to go down yeah. sometimes. But and, and it's interesting. So mm-hmm. multiple doses ago, I'm equally as anxious as I ever was. But then you right. look at the skills that are being used to assess anxiety, and it does appear to be somewhat less. Mm-hmm. And the functional ability has gone up dramatically, right? People are returning to do things that they right. hadn't been doing uh, because they were sitting at home worried about the next benzodiazepine dose, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think... Taking that into account helped me understand some of the articles that we looked at. Mm-hmm. Almost all of the studies that were done, and by studies I mean some sort of intervention that was recorded as opposed to a, a case report, right? Mm-hmm. Almost all of those had a lot of exclusions, right? Yes. <laughs> Who could be in a benzodiazepine uh, deprescription study? Oh gosh, I'm trying to remember. One of them was trying to follow everything that they were excluding, and one of them was very confusing. Yeah, my my impression was the only thing you can have going on in your entire life is mild anxiety. Yes. Mm -hmm. And a benzodiazepine dose, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Schizophrenia uh, 
not included severe mental illness, severe personality disorders, mm -hmm. al comorbid alcohol use disorder, right? All of these things were excluded from the majority of these studies to try and get a more clear picture. So mm -hmm. uh, how many patients did you see in your outpatient setting that had only uh, higher use of benzodiazepine mm. than would be liked? None that I can think of. <laughs> so this isn't, this isn't the mm. typical population, right? Right. So there are a lot of questions that come up about this. So how fast do you do it? Mm. What kind of dose do you reduce each time? How would you monitor if it's safe? I don't know that I found really good answers to this. Yeah, I mean, I didn't see very much in terms of uh, cohesiveness about what's the best dose to taper at, like what's the best increment to kind of lower it at per person. Um, and then as far as adjunctive therapies go, there were some medications that some people seem to use sometimes, but no strong evidence for any of them. I remember looking at the Cochrane yes. review, and I think <laughs> it says something along the lines of, very, very low quality evidence that it might be helpful yeah. in certain situations <laughs> to either, right, one of three mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe this could work, who knows? It might help with withdrawal symptoms, it might help with anxiety, and it might help avoid with, uh, mm -hmm. help with avoiding relapse, right? Those were the three outcomes right. that the Cochrane database looked at, and I think that was one of the things that made all of this very muddy, is that there started to be a lot of measures that were looked at Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I think one of the best studies we looked at had 650 measures and no regression analysis to tell us that, you know, they're not p-hacking to find something, right? Mm -hmm. And that was one of our better studies, I thought. Yeah. So um, I think the numbers I saw fairly consistently were maybe 20 to 30% dose reduction of the original mm -hmm. dose with each step you take. And then how long you took between steps was the question that wasn't as clear to me. Yeah, yeah. I saw a couple that was like one week or two weeks in between, and they weren't comparing the two. So I wasn't sure which would be the best method to go by. Yeah. I know an outpatient, it was a lot of, I think, it felt very arbitrary sometimes. <laughs> just sometimes, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sort of hunch-driven, right? Yeah, a lot of it was just kind of how much will they be willing to go down on. So if they can do every two weeks, then we'll do every two weeks. If they can do every week. Mm -hmm. um, we might try every week. So a lot of it was just what the patients were okay with doing too. Right, I think that that's mm -hmm. um, what it comes down to in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, that takes me to the Gosselin study. I, I wanna, we've talked about deprescribing, right? We've mm -hmm. said early intervention is best. Don't start the benzodiazepines, don't keep them going. If they are there and you start reducing the dose, mm -hmm. uh, there's at least some evidence that uh, slow taper somewhere between maybe three to 12 months uh, with 20% with per step maybe, right? Maybe right. that's where things are guiding us. Um, maybe trying to reduce medications by switching to a longer half-life benzodiazepine and slowly coming off that, mm -hmm. maybe. But I think one of the best articles I read was about CBT for uh, benzodiazepine deprescription. Lauren, this is where you come in. Yes, so CBT is commonly referred to as cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a psychopathology um, modality that focuses on identifying a individual's thoughts, behaviors, and feelings. And so the idea is that you look for patterns within those three realms, and then as you become more familiar with what's existing, you can then be um, making targeted changes to increase well-being. So if you're having... 
patterns that when certain situations arise, you have an automatic thought. You can become familiar that that's where your mind automatically goes to, and then you can then create those changes to increase your overall well-being. I like it. You had three articles, I think, that you looked at. Tell me what you saw highlights in the articles about uh, deprescribing with benzodiazepines, with benzodiazepines, sorry, using CBT as an adjunctive therapy in deprescribing benzodiazepines. Absolutely. So, um, commonly, one of the struggles that comes with deprescribing benzodiazepines is anticipatory anxiety. So, the idea that you began taking the medication to help with the anxiety symptoms, and then as you consider the idea of taking that support, those anxieties arise again, and sometimes even stronger. So as you become more aware of the patterns of thoughts that, okay, I'm thinking about, we're going to lower my dose, you might notice that, okay, I'm gonna have an increase of symptoms. So as you become aware of those cognitions and those patterns, you can then change the thought from, I'm going to get worse, to it's a change and it's going to be difficult for a time, and then I can utilize these coping skills to help me get through it. So that's, I think, the balance statement that we look at in CBT, right, where you take the emotion and the automatic thought, which may or may not be accurate, and then you try and build a more accurate thought out of that, which I think is what you just did, right? Yes. Ah, good. I'm learning a little bit. <laughs> there are actually a fair number of questions that students end up being asked about CBT uh, on the shelf exam that they take at the end of the rotation. Yeah. Uh, I think most tests have at least one question related to CBT. It's usually the answer. It quite <laughs> often, if it's a choice, it's usually the answer, yeah. The answer. So there are three randomized control trials that uh, I think we ran across in a number of reviews of meta-analysis or meta-analysis themselves that reference these three articles. And it looks like maybe two of the three were very positive, right, and one of them didn't come out positive. And did, did you read the one that didn't find... CBT to be helpful. Did you ever come across that one? Because I never did. I don't believe that I did. Okay. The Gosselin article, um, what they found, and I was very impressed with this, 75% of people who were deprescribed with the help of adjunctive CBT had total abstinence at the 12-week mark. And I think that would fit the roughly, you know, somewhere between 15 to 25% per two weeks, somewhere in that mm -hmm. uh, kind of idea. And at uh, the year mark, there was still very good data that many of those people had stayed off benzodiazepines. And in fact, one of the things that I seem to see over and over in the different articles is that anybody who can come off a benzodiazepine seems to stay off a benzodiazepine generally yeah. Yeah. in these settings where you're taking people who have physiological dependence to benzodiazepines without significant comorbidity, mm -hmm. such as alcohol misuse or some sort of uh, you know, bipolar disorder, severe anxiety, right? So even modest anxiety, there seemed to be a pretty good benefit at the year mark. And then with just the taper alone, about 37% of the people that came off of benzodiazepines without adjunctive CPT. So I think the number needed to treat is somewhere around two, right? For every two patients that you refer to uh, CBT therapy, uh, one of those will get a benefit out of it. So I think those are pretty solid numbers if I'm doing my numbers right. That's another step thing, or shelf thing. <laughs> right? Number needed to treat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, right. well, let's see. So 75% subtract 37 mm -hmm. gives you about 37, so it's actually closer to three, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's still pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, it appears that CBT 
helps both in the process, right, teaching about benzodiazepine withdrawal, but also in anxiety overall. And I think there are about three billion articles that have been published on treatment of anxiety with CBT, right? Yes. Does that sound about right from what you read? Absolutely. All right. There was an article or a couple of tests that I'm not very familiar with, and maybe you are. They used the Penn State Worry Questionnaire. They used the Intolerance to Uncertainty Questionnaire. They used the Negative Problem Orientation Questionnaire. I'm not familiar with any of those. Are you? I'm not. Okay. Either of you guys familiar with those? Mm -mm. I'm not either. State okay. Worry one sounds familiar, but that's the best I got. <laughs> Very, very reasonable. They did use the Beck Anxiety Inventory, okay. uh, which I think, or actually I think they used the Beck Depression Inventory, um, even though I think they were tracking anxiety more. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating to me because a lot of times we see some sort of like uh, database records, pharmacy database records that show that benzodiazepines are commonly prescribed for depression. Mm -hmm. But I just, I, I'm, I'm not sure I track that because that's clearly not where the indications are for treatment, right? Right, that also kind of sounds almost like it could do the opposite that you want to see happen in a person with depression. Yeah. Like yeah. calm them down a little too much. They are depressants, mm -hmm. right? CNS yeah. depressants. Um, one of the things that seemed to be the strength of CBT for benzodiazepine deprescribing was yeah. that the last steps seemed to be the most difficult steps in stopping benzodiazepines. I don't know if that was your experience. That's been my experience in mm -hmm. private practice. And that's verbalized in, in this paper by Gosselin. I don't know that I've seen data on that, but that sounds right. Mm -hmm. And what they suggested was that CBT actually helped people take that final step. And one of the reasons for that was that people who were deprescribing without CBT and people who were deprescribing with CBT, those that didn't fully deprescribe we're all taking about the average same dose. In other words, everybody got stuck at that last step, it sounds like, or not everybody, but a, a surprising amount of people got stuck at the last step of, okay, let's get rid of this medication now. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting. So CBT seems to be helpful. There's better evidence for that than anything else. Mm -hmm. What about if you're in a primary care physician's office, right? Mm -hmm. our, fi our family practice docs are the people that in many cases are starting benzodiazepines. And I thought the group out of Spain, this is the Vincent's article, a mm -hmm. uh, study done in Mallorca. I thought they made a great point, which was, hey, if we're starting these, maybe we should talk about stopping them too, right? Right. <laughs> Tell me what you remember of that article, Ryan. Oh, I'm trying to, so let me pull it up again, because that was one of the first ones I read. Mm -hmm. If you want, I'll start by talking about yes. how they set up the study. So mm -hmm. uh, what they did is they found three or four community centers, and this was non-blinded. Right? So they had uh, over 80% of the people in the study were women. Mm -hmm. The average age was 59, and the meds had mostly been started by primary care physicians. Generally, the benzodiazepines were short to medium half-life benzodiazepines, and there was... Uh, as far as I can tell, um, I'm trying to remember if this is the study where they advertised for people to come in and come off their benzodiazepines, but I don't think it was. I, I think, think the CBT, right. yeah, that was the Gosselin study where they, yeah. where they recruited people who wanted to stop benzodiazepines, so people who wanted to stop, who were helped with deprescribing, 
I mean, clearly people who are interested in doing it did better with CBT, right? Mm -hmm. And I think right. this is a little bit different in that what they did is they had uh, everybody who was coming into the primary care center, they were put into two arms. Mm -hmm. And I think they tried to case control, well, no, they didn't try to case control match them. That was a different study yet again. Mm -hmm. um, but what they did is they put people into two groups. And in one group, they just kind of did the run-of-the-mill stuff. And then in the second group, there was this very, very clear educational process mm -hmm. that talked about risk and benefits of continued use of benzodiazepines. Mm -hmm. Take it over from there if you remember where we're at now. Right, yeah. So I just thought it was interesting because they kind of used the fact that the patients had a relationship with their family practitioner um, as kind of, I, I don't know, used kind of sound sort of malicious, but they um, were able to educate their patients, and because they, ha I think because they had that relationship, the patients were able to better understand what the doctor was saying, so yeah, the control group was just a controlled taper, but without the education, if I'm remembering correctly, and then the intervention group, they were given education at each visit about why they should be tapering off of the benzodiazepines at that time. So I think the control group mm -hmm. was had, didn't have that. But they didn't have that at all. I don't think okay. they had that at all. I think it was treatment as usual. Okay. You know, maybe the passing, hey, you know, you got to consider yeah, stopping yeah, beds. Yeah. This they didn't is, have any of the education. But it wasn't the educational yeah. piece which talked about no, the no. risks and the benefits of continued. And, mm -hmm. and I thought it was fascinating that if you look at the chart where they talked about the risks and the benefits, essentially it said, well, your, your medication really isn't supposed to be used for the way you're using mm -hmm. it, so there's not really a, you're not really, we're there's not really no following benefit. medicine, mm -hmm. but here are the risks. And it was like this, you know, mm -hmm. dementia, car accidents, all the kinds of things we've mentioned before this. Right. Um, and what they found was that when education was provided and the taper was done um, mm -hmm. every two weeks at 25% of the original dose, at the year mark, half of the people that were in the group that were being offered this information had complete withdrawal and mm -hmm. a fifth more had uh, dose reductions. Mm -hmm. And this was substantially different than the group that was the comparator group where I think it was less than 10%. Yeah, it was small. It was uh, very, very small. small. Maybe 13 or 10? So I think we might have read completely different articles. There are about a billion articles about benzodiazepines, right? Mm -hmm. tell, me what, uh, tell me what you read uh, up to this point. We'll, we'll jump into adjunctive medications next. Mm -hmm. But wh what have you read or what would you add to what we've tackled so far? Right. So I was reading a lot about kind of the differences of the different benzodiazepines too. Mm -hmm. um, so like we were talking about earlier with alprazolam being a shorter or shorter acting versus diazepam being longer acting. And I was kind of looking into how all the different benzodiazepines, or not all, because there could be up to 90, but how a bunch <laughs> of different benzodiazepines fit into that. Um, so mostly how we kind of separate them out between long acting, intermediate acting, and short acting based off of their half-lives. Um, one thing I found interesting was that some of the benzodiazepines like um, chlorazepate, chlordiazepoxide, chlordiazepoxide, and diazepam both ha or all have um, metabolites that can kind of increase their half-life and cause some other... I think Valium up to almost 100 hours. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have f yeah, 50 to 100 hours, which sounds crazy to me. Um, and interesting and definitely makes sense as to why it's a longer acting drug. Um, because I think, yeah, the parent drug is only 20 to 80 hours and then it can go up to 100 with the metabolites. And I, I want to say it's oxazepam is one of its metabolites and a couple others. 
Oh, I didn't know that oxazepam well. was a metabolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that pretty was cool. interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I was looking kind of into the differences in all the different, um, well, again, some of the different benzodiazepines. Um, so one thing I found interesting is that most of them are metabolized by the liver via um, cytochrome P450. Um, lorazepam, oxazepam, and temazepam all bypass the C, uh, cytochrome P450, so... Commonly a test question on the shelf exam. Yes. <laughs> I, I have read that mm. clonazepam also uses renal excretion, but right. I, I also read that it doesn't, so you're always safe mm-hmm. with LOT, lorazepam, oxazepam, mm-hmm. and temazepam, right? Yeah, I also heard OLT out of out of the liver or something like that, OTL. I don't know. And I also I like remember, better. yeah, and I remembered clot too. So clot or lot. Clozapam. Okay. Yeah. So those are important mm-hmm. things to remember. And one of the things that is said quite often about benzodiazepines, and, and I looked for references because this is mentioned mm-hmm. in a couple of the papers, but it's not cited, right? There's this uh, idea out there and I think it's probably accurate. And I think it's a general principle that short half-life molecules that have rapid onset of action, mm-hmm. Um, tend to be more addicting, right? right. So we think about uh, Xanax or Alprazolam as being the most addictive of the mm-hmm. benzodiazepines that are prescribed commonly for anxiety. We think of uh, Dilaudid as being very yeah. addictive mm-hmm. in terms of opioids because of its very fast half-life um, and so forth, right? But mm-hmm. it doesn't always hold up for me because I think right. uh, there are uh, things like uh, Oxycontin, right, which really uh, became the drug of choice other than heroin mm-hmm. uh, when people could afford it didn't seem to have the same half-life the way I understood half-life mm-hmm. so uh, it's something maybe to explore in a future mm-hmm. podcast but yeah. generally this is a principle that's talked about right shorter half-life more addictive and I think you had shared an article about appraisalam specifically mm-hmm. um, and I can't remember exactly what they were saying but they brought up that point that people do say it's more addictive and they were kind of looking comparing it to diazepam and they found that there wasn't really a difference between the two as far as what they saw in people, um, I, which is harder to go off of. I, I don't know that I saw a lot of difference in deprescribing. When I was involved yeah. in deprescribing, uh, it seemed like it's hard to come off of all of the benzodiazepines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what else did you read about that uh, we haven't tackled yet? Mm-hmm. Let's see. I said a lot. I did leave my iPad back home. <laughs> Just, <laughs> So I have my less organized notes with me here. Hmm. What about, mm-hmm. while you're thinking about that, what about adjunctive medications in deprescribing? Mm-hmm. Talk about this. Mm-hmm. Was there something that you went, yep, that's what I'm going to do in the future? Boy, uh, not quite. I mean, one that I felt like uh, might just be the most important because the alternative is just not healthy. Um, is trying to stop any withdrawal seizures with something like carbamazepine or sodium valproate. Um, Carbamazepine seemed to be something that people used often Mm -hmm. as an adjunct to um, deprescribing. It didn't seem like it had that much data to back it up. A study we were talking about that kind of reviewed all those adjunctive therapies, um, like you were saying, didn't really come up with any big conclusions like this is the one you have to use or... If you're using anything, use this specific medication. But I feel like preventing seizures is pretty important, I think. Even one of the articles, mm-hmm. the German article that we read that had the very mm-hmm. specific deprescribing criteria plus the criteria for hospitalized uh, withdrawal, mm-hmm. hosp- withdrawal under a hospitalized setting, 
even they said that yeah. we don't find good evidence for what to use to avoid seizures. Right. Which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that kind of scared me. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's why, I mean, yeah, I, I didn't find anything that seemed like it was the thing to use. So... So we read yeah. two articles. One was the Flu mm-hmm. Yao article, mm-hmm. and it went through a list of medications that had been used. I didn't like the way this article was set up. Mm-hmm. I thought that the, um, I, I thought that the way the Cochrane review done in 2018 was done made a lot more sense, mm-hmm. right? Because it really talked about these three three domains, in deprescribing an outpatient setting. The first is withdrawal symptoms. The second was anxiety. And the third was how do you avoid relapse, right? Because those are three very different goals at the end mm-hmm. of, of deprescribing. And in terms of withdrawal symptoms, they said, well, maybe, maybe valproic acid, maybe pregabalin, maybe TCAs. I, I don't know that that makes a lot of sense because we think of uh, the mechanism of action of TCAs and, and Paxil. I think Paxil might have been li- listed in that too. I think we think of those things as having a very distinct mechanism of action and not necessarily uh, responding to that change in receptor activity, mm-hmm. upregulation, downregulation, sensitivity that is described in some of the papers, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was left kind of pulling up my car- collar in that very uncomfortable, like, okay, can I breathe away with this? And uh, maybe with anxiety, carbamazepine, pregabalin, Paxil again, right. maybe to avoid relapse, uh, valproic acid. Um, I mean, but there's, how many medications did they go through in the flu article, right? Clonidine, progesterone, mm-hmm. baclofen, gabapentin, carbamazepine, mm-hmm. uh, VPA, pregabalin, flumazenil. I didn't understand that one at all, right? Flumazenil is uh, Yeah, for an overdose, but... But it seemed almost like it would be inducing withdrawal. Right. And yet, so, that yeah, and, and again, mm-hmm. this is a small number. Ondansetron, which is fascinating mm-hmm. because that has a lot of overlap with uh, naltrexone in terms of its receptor activity. Um, but at, at the end of the day, I was left wanting for how would I reduce the anxiety and withdrawal symptoms mm-hmm. and then maybe have something that reduced the risk of, of relapse later. And I, I, I wasn't really left with anything that was very hardy. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm also left with the idea maybe that once somebody is off a of benzodiazepine, most people are off it. And so maybe finding right. something that helps people stay off. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like CBT is the thing that had the most backing behind it that I could read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think as so. As far as an adjunctive treatment. I think mm-hmm. so. Yeah, that's kind of where I was left too. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so um, anything else that we should be tackling on this podcast? Mm-hmm. If not, let's call it good. I think for now, I think we're good. We right. go into a lot of rabbit holes with this. <laughs> uh, I, I felt like we actually started off with a fairly tight area to tackle, mm-hmm. but I think it, it really became too big. I think we could have done a podcast that had better detail if we talked about how do you choose where and when to hospitalize somebody versus do outpatient prescribing, mm-hmm. or is there one medication that can be used adjunctively adjunctively and tried to find the best study for the one choice mm-hmm. or you know maybe tried to go through all of the three articles on CBT and tackle that exclusively and why we thought maybe that the two articles were more compelling than the third article you know we we didn't talk about the differences in generalized anxiety versus panic mm-hmm. in terms of any of these things either and so i think there were a lot of ways to even make this tighter, but I thought we did, I thought we tried at the beginning of this. Mm-hmm. 
because we we cut out right acute withdrawal right mm-hmm. um, which is the next topic we're going to tackle I think so yeah and maybe we're tackling too much because we keep getting pulled into this GABA receptor <laughs> that's kind of cool right mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll, I'll stay away from the biochem I promise no, I, well <laughs> I can tell you that biochem doesn't make for very great podcasts. I have a lot of students who tell me. I believe that 100%. When you started talking about the drug names and the metabolites, I don't know. I kind of zoned out. (laughs) Picture yourself with that. That's what I was saying earlier today. (laughs) Yeah, I wish we had a better way to do pictures on this. (laughs) But this is really a podcast that's designed for people that are driving Mm -hmm. to listen to that, that feel like they desperately need to study and don't have any other way to do it at the moment. Right. This is not to replace other things generally. Perfect description of med students. <laughs> if I'm not studying, I'm wrong. Yeah, I remember those days. Speaking of anxiety. <laughs> All right, guys, on that note, uh, I'd like you to each uh, take just a moment and think about the take-home point that you have for this uh, podcast. I'll give you my take-home point while you guys are thinking about it. My take-home point is that I had previously thought about alcohol withdrawal delirium as being very similar to benzodiazepine withdrawal delirium. And surprisingly enough, I didn't find anything that really um, gave me credence for that belief. I saw a few articles that mentioned maybe how one might apply to the other, but it was very, very limited and very done very, very cautiously. So um, my perspective that maybe using uh, anti-epileptics to help somebody withdrawal from at least deprescribed from benzodiazepines was lessened and the idea that maybe just using SSRIs more effectively I mean I don't know that there's great data for that either there's just not data in this topic so I was left uh, with the idea that when I come to the point of needing to treat or tackle deprescribing I feel like I need to read a lot more because I'm just not sure I feel comfortable with the nuances of this. I'm not sure there's compelling data for one strategy or another. So that's kind of where I was left, maybe with the exception of CBT. Mm-hmm. So let's see. Manu? I think the biggest take-home point for me is with all this information, perhaps the easiest thing would be to be as well-informed as we can as practitioners and maybe not even begin to prescribe benzodiazepines (laughs) to avoid the issue entirely. Um, And then I guess part of that would be just the importance of patient education, even looking into the history of benzodiazepines and overdose deaths and all these celebrities that we hear about and mixing all these prescriptions. I mean, those are celebrities, but I'm sure that there are so many people out there. So just the component of patient education Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's even a topic we didn't tackle very well. I, I mentioned to you guys as we were doing some of the prep work for this podcast that when I started in medical school, what I was taught was that short-acting benzodiazepines are very addictive. They're very problematic. I still tend to think that's accurate. And so the response was make everything long-acting so that there's not continued misuse or, or this common trigger, I need to go find my next pill in two hours or four hours or six hours, as opposed to I take one pill a day and I'm covered. But then suddenly we saw people like uh, Heath Ledger and Nicole Smith and a number of other people who ended up dying from this combination of long-acting opioids and long-acting benzodiazepines. And so I I think your point is very well taken, which is these are medications that even though we thought were safer than barbiturates when they came out, they're not benign. And I can probably count on my hands and feet the number of times that I've started benzodiazepines for somebody and kept them going uh, for more than you know 
to settle agitation here at the state hospital, but very rarely for outpatient, right? Very, very rarely. Lauren. As the social worker, my plug has to be the importance of utilizing CBT. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think you're the only one alone there, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Just got to put in my two cents, but um, also the importance of making treatment a partnership that your patients are aware of what's going on and that they have a say in it. And when you're able to utilize that partnership, you're able to have better outcomes. Boy, what a great comment, because I think even the, the study that the difference between the primary care setting where they were providing psychoeducation to invite people to do that and the study where people were already collaborating, which was the CBT where they recruited by media, even, I mean, almost 30% of the people who had, uh, who came in wanting to do something, right, which is a collaborative process at, at the heart of it, even 30% of those patients went through benzodiazepine withdrawal fairly quickly and did it pretty well and stopped, right? That was an amazing number to me and I think it speaks in large part to that collaboration. And I think on the other hand, the primary care study, which is where physicians are providing education so that that collaboration can be initiated. I think that was, a, I mean, I think, I think you're right. <laughs> How's that sound? You're just so right. Perfect. <laughs> I'll remember that. I'll bring it up next time. <laughs> yeah, so, so your uh, supervisor is Corey. Yes. You tell him you're right when you need to. You pull out that ace card and just Perfect. flip it down. Perfect. <laughs> Randy said, I am right. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, uh, last word. Uh, yeah, I think one thing I got out of a lot of this is that um, we're always going to be learning about drugs. And one thing that might be standard of practice now in 20 years, we might look back and think, wow, like, I can't believe we did that. Like, who was thinking that this would be a good thing to prescribe? Because, um, I mean, it was just such a cool drug that they discovered, and it helped so many people at the time, they thought. Um, but, yeah, and further down the road, we're just kind of like, why would people ever give this to a patient? That's crazy. <laughs> so <laughs> I think just learning how to grow and maybe change um, as as the decades roll on and figuring out, okay, like I used to use this. Now I know that I shouldn't use this. And I don't know, kind of just growing with that is a good thing to learn. Oh man. Now you're speaking to one of the things that I find most interesting, which is the adoption of ideas mm -hmm. and changing of practice. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, not to, uh, extend this any further. I think that would be a great podcast. How do physicians make changes on that note? Thank you so much guys for this podcast and, uh, team out. Team out. Team out. Team out.